Hello, everybody. It is July 7th, 2023, 7 7, Jill. You're listening to the Mo News podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. 7 7, and I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, I feel like. I should play some Powerball or Mega Millions or something today on the 7-7. Well, Moshe, if you're actually feeling lucky, <laughs> you should, <laughs> because there's a lot of money to be won. The Mega Millions is up to, I think, $420 million. That drawing is tonight. The Powerball is up to about $600 million, and that drawing is tomorrow. Jill, I imagine several of our listeners and most Americans will be playing again, 7-7. We get 7-11 coming up next week. Just it's July, so it's the month of 7 so I imagine, you know, again, if these drawings uh, don't find winners tonight, we could be looking at a couple billion dollar jackpots pretty soon. And just in terms of it being Friday this week with the holiday, I don't I feel like I don't know if I'm coming or going. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a short week. And if you're lucky enough not to have worked Monday or Tuesday, only only a three day week and you have yet another weekend upon you. So uh, any exciting plans? Yes, a bunch of my Michigan gals, my, my college friends are going to come over. Jill, it sounds like some exhilarating suburban fun there. Mahjong? <laughs> what is suburban about that? Getting together with my <laughs> friends from college. In the suburbs, in the suburbs. <laughs> that is where I live. Sorry, I'm a city elitist here in Brooklyn. <laughs> We got a little defensive there, everybody. A little defensive. No, it's okay to live in the suburbs. I I will end up there at some point. Listen, I take full ownership of being a suburban mom, but I just wasn't making the correlation between getting together with my college friends. Um, anywho, let's get to some news. Okay, Meta's new Threads app already has 30 million users in less than 24 hours. We've had a look how it is the same and different from Twitter. And how Twitter's viewing it, including some potential legal action, folks. All right, Mosh, we like to say where in the world is Mosh Wanunu, but in this case, where in the world is Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin? Supposedly, he's back in Russia. For the record here, the only thing I share in common with the mercenary leader is that we travel. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Meanwhile, NBC News reports that some former U.S. officials held secret talks with Russians about potential negotiations to end the Ukraine war. On to the economy, the job market is still on fire. What some new numbers out on Thursday could mean for the Fed when it comes to interest rates. But in one industry that was impacted by layoffs, the tech industry, it was actually women that were disproportionately impacted. A new study says forever chemicals could be in nearly half of U.S. tap water and a major breakthrough when it comes to an Alzheimer's treatment. Plus, Moshe has on the stay in history. We'll do a little bit of Hawaii history, Jill, and uh, some history for, I think, one of your favorite 1990s TV shows. Ooh, okay. <laughs> you have piqued my interest. And it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for what we are watching, reading, and eating this weekend. Jill, admission, I am literally deciding what I'm eating this weekend uh, right now as we record the podcast. I'm taste testing a couple uh, new items in our kitchen. I'm going to go out on a limb and say they have to do with ice cream. Jill, why are you blowing the surprise? <laughs> All right, let's get to it. We've gotten a full day to dive into Instagram's new Twitter competitor. The Threads app has now been out for about 24 hours, and already it has more than 30 million users, including a number of celebs. We're talking Shakira, J-Lo, Tom Brady, Gordon Ramsay. Those were just some of the names who signed on early, at least according to Meta, 
the parent company of Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and now Threads. So what is Threads? It's basically Meta's answer to Twitter. It is a text-based social media platform. If you've been on Twitter, the interface looks very similar, and it lets users sign up straight from their Instagram accounts with the same username, the same followers. If you've blocked someone on Instagram, they are still blocked on Threads. About 2 billion people use Instagram every single month, which means even if a fraction of those users decide to import their accounts to Thread, this could be a hit. Jill, for context, Twitter has about 300 million users. So if they can at least get about 15 to 20% of their Instagram users to uh, try and get on threads, that'll already surpass the user count over at Twitter. Yeah, and that gives threads a major leg up on other Twitter competitors like Mastodon, Blue Sky, and Truth Social. And if you're saying, huh? Yeah, that's because they never really went mainstream. I do want to play a bit of audio from Adam Masseri. He is the CEO of Instagram and a follower of the Motion Instagram account. Jill, also a member of Mo News Premium as of this weekend. Wow, that is <laughs> that is we 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 are growing drop. the Mo News. <laughs> we are growing the Mo News Premium, and uh, and we are thankful to count uh, Masseri as one of those premium members. All right. Well, so this is Masseri talking a bit about Threads. Threads, a new app from Instagram, is here. Threads is for public conversation. We're hoping to bring some of what we've built for photos and videos on Instagram to threads with text. Now the idea is there's an amazing community on Instagram and wonderful creators. We want to create a space where they can engage in public conversations that is friendly and that is open. Okay, Moshe, I think the operative word there is friendly. One of the biggest criticisms of Twitter, particularly since Elon Musk purchased the platform, is that it's just become toxic. Musk has laid off a ton of staff and critics had said Twitter is just no longer able to protect users from trolling and disinformation. And to that end, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg wrote about threads. I think that there should be a public conversations app with a billion plus people on it. Twitter's had the opportunity to do this, but hasn't nailed it. Hopefully we will. Elon Musk's response, he said, it is infinitely preferable to be attacked by strangers on Twitter than indulge in the false happiness of hide the pain Instagram, which he wrote, of course, on Twitter. Mosh, you and I both noticed that, I think, in at least the first 24 hours, that Threads was just fun. People are being clever without being attacked. It reminds us of the early days of Twitter. Absolutely, though, Jill, I, I, used, I saw that you posted early <laughs> yes. on Thursday morning that, that you did get a little bit of a uh, little bit of hate. Yes, I posted a very generic, hey, everyone, we still liking threads <laughs> this morning when I woke up and I got a response from someone that was like, no one effing cares. I don't want to see this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, oh my God, it already started. I, I was joking. I felt like Tom Hanks, who had said that about Twitter, where he would innocently post, say, hey, have you seen the shoe in the middle of the street? And people would write back, you know, F you, Tom Hanks. It's just nobody needs that energy. Well, it's one of the reasons we started, you know, I started posting news three years ago on Instagram is that I felt that the toxicity over at Twitter wasn't good. So by the way, you know, we note that, you know, Elon's gotten a bum rap here for what he's done with Twitter uh, over the last year. But I mean, Twitter has been known as a pretty toxic place for a number of years now, a place of negativity, uh, attacks, some really dark stuff, harassment, et cetera, especially if you're a woman or a minority. And so the book has not been written yet on uh Threads here, which is, you know, just more than a day in. As you mentioned, in order to use Threads, you need an Instagram account. And it's getting some criticism because of that. Because 
as we found out uh, from people who want to delete their Threads account after joining it, uh, once you create a Threads account right now, as of right now, the only way to delete your Threads account would also delete your Instagram account. And so that took people aback being like, whoa, how the hell did you hook me into this? This is not cool, meta slash Instagram. The head of Instagram, uh, Masseri, trying to clarify that position, saying that, you know, because the way they built this with one username, uh, you know, where there's all this connectivity to Instagram, that as of right now, the two accounts are connected, but they are looking into ways to delete your Threads account separately. And they're looking to build that out right now. So that's the vow from the folks at Meta Instagram. In the meantime, if you're not interested, you can hide your profile. You can set your profile to private. Uh, you can delete individual threads posts. Uh, and you can basically do all of that. You can delete the app off of your phone. You just can't delete your threads account as of right now without also losing your Instagram account. So that's something we will track here. I have noticed, um, at least for the first 24, 36 hours of this thing, that Masseri and, and even Mark Zuckerberg appear to be pretty responsive to feedback, good and bad. Yeah, you know, they're kind of taking a, uh, a cue from Elon Musk, who, uh, you know, is very active on his Twitter platform, is very responsive to people. Uh, and they appear to be, you know, responding uh, in real time to people. I actually, I posed a question to Masseri. He didn't reply yet in terms of searchability. You know, one thing as a news person that I'd love to be able to do on threads is to be able to search hashtags and search topics. And as of right now, at least in the first couple of days of the platform, you can only search usernames and not things people wrote. Like if I wrote about, you know, Donald Trump, or if I wrote about, uh, you know, uh, Russia or whatever, that's not searchable as of yet. Right. Notably, there are no trending topics. And it's kind of like everything is a, a blessing and a curse here. You know, there's there's pros and cons. On the plus side, Threads is connected to Instagram. Well, that's great because you don't have to start from scratch. And it's literally like one click and your entire profile gets transferred over and you're following the same people. And it's really nice on the negative. As we mentioned, you can't delete Threads without <laughs> deleting Instagram. So there's that. <laughs> Correct. And to that point, uh, on the plus side, a lot of people have said, and, and I agree, it's kind of nice that there's no trending. I am so tired of going on Twitter and seeing Jews trending and being like, what now? Okay. They, <laughs> and that's a real thing. I mean, it was like, I'd say five out of seven days a week, Jews, Jews of New York, Jewish, something that is just inherently anti-Semitic is happening on Twitter. Right. I was going to say, it was typically not trending because people want to talk about how much they love Kugel. Yes. It's not like a Mel Brooks fan page. It is a, <laughs> it is usually in a very dark place. <laughs> We're discussing similarities and differences here between uh, Twitter and threads. A, a post or a thread on threads can have 500 characters, which is a bit more than Twitter. Uh, there are a number of features that mimic those of Twitter, like retweeting or reposting. Imagine they'll have to come up with phrases like rethreading or threading the needle or, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of metaphors or uh, references to sewing that people will come up with here. Jill, I know you coined being becoming a threadhead uh, for addicts. We'll see if that one takes off. Uh, as we mentioned. <laughs> so far, as, no. So far, it hasn't. <laughs> no. I understand. No. As we mentioned, Threads does not have direct messaging, which means you got to put it all out there in public. You can't be messaging people directly. Uh, they say, because you have enough inboxes, you got Facebook Messenger, you got WhatsApp, you have your uh, direct message box on Instagram. And so just another mailbox to check 
uh, they believe is too much. Right now, it's available in 100 countries, but right now not available in the European Union because of privacy concerns, which a number of people took note of here. In the European Union, they have something called the Digital Markets Act. It's a law about competition and privacy. It's unclear if Meta's uh, new app here complies with that. And so with that in mind, they did not release it there in Europe. One thing they don't have yet that we know are coming is ads. They're waiting for the platform to become large enough before they start selling ads. And of course, there's a huge ad market. That's how Meta makes a bunch of its money uh, over on Facebook and Instagram. So I imagine uh, that's out there. There's also no edit button. So once you send that thread, it's out there forever unless you delete it. So there is that. And Jill, we should mention uh, context here. Uh, this does come uh, as Twitter has been undergoing a lot of issues, both that predate Elon Musk, that also uh, they've been dealing with since Elon Musk, and just a reputational issue when it comes to uh, advertisers, uh, companies that don't want to advertise on this platform anymore, uh, people feeling that, like, and I've noticed this, that the algorithm has changed. It's much harder uh, to follow the accounts uh, that you followed because they've tweaked the algorithm to keep bringing new accounts uh, into your feed. Uh, and that has made the Twitter experience less pleasurable and frankly, less useful than many people found it before. And that created an opening here. And as we know, Mark Zuckerberg and Meta, when they see an opening, when they see one of their competitors uh, looking like it's weak, they go in for the kill. Uh, that was something they certainly tried to do to Snapchat when Snapchat refused to sell to them. And of course, of late, they've been uh, trying to take advantage of TikTok's issues here uh, in the U.S., questions about you know its ownership, et cetera, uh, by also mimicking successful formats from TikTok, uh, most notably Reels over on Instagram. Yeah, we talked about differences between Twitter and threads, but it appears to be similar enough that Twitter reportedly threatening legal action against Meta, accusing the social media giant of poaching former employees to create a, quote, copycat app. This is according to Semaphore. On Thursday, a lawyer for Twitter sent a letter to Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg accusing the company of engaging in, quote, systemic, willful, and unlawful misappropriation of Twitter's trade secrets and other intellectual property. Meta, meanwhile, telling Semaphore, the media site, that no one on Thread's engineering team is a former Twitter employee. That's just not a thing. But it does show Twitter must feel a bit threatened here. And I do want to talk about timing. Meta rolling this out at a time when Twitter is making all of these changes, many of which are unpopular. Adam Mosseri saying there was an opportunity or demand for more people to play in the public space and that a chance to challenge Twitter came about not just because of the ownership, but because of the product changes and decisions that had been made to Twitter under Elon Musk. Jill, one notable thing here, apparently Meta initially contemplated making this a feature within Instagram called Instagram Notes, where people could share short messages on the site within the existing app. Ultimately, according to the New York Times, Masseri said that he and other managers decided that they should actually make a bet on a separate messaging app altogether and leaned into building what became Threads. Jill, if anyone's been on the Facebook app uh, of late, if you go in there, the number of features, just the dozens and dozens and dozens of sections <laughs> and features, which I do not remember because I also haven't frequently used Facebook in recent years, it's made it almost unusable. Uh, and I think, you know, many people are applauding here that, you know, don't do the same thing to Instagram, create a separate app here. At the same time, we should note this, right? Uh, this is a gargantuan company, Meta, right? There's already questions about it uh, from a regulatory side in terms of its monopoly on social media. It's, uh, you know, it has Facebook, it has Instagram, it has WhatsApp, 
It has Oculus, which is a major player in the you know the VR meta space, right? And now they're going to have another app. So I think you know, in talking to people, especially people in the media who are frequent users of these platforms, you know, you're of two minds about this because you know Twitter has gone downhill, and there's a feeling that it's not the same, and people are you know looking for an alternative. But that alternative is also owned by the same owners of Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, and they're going to be even larger. So I think there's a that's a conundrum for a lot of people. Yes, it's a sentiment that I saw on threads today. A lot of people saying, you know, Twitter has gone downhill when you're rooting for Meta. Okay, switching gears, where in the world is Russian mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin, according to the president of Belarus, Prigozhin has apparently returned to Russia despite making a deal with the Kremlin in which Prigozhin had agreed to move to Belarus. Now, this comes just a couple of weeks, if you remember, after Prigozhin led this armed rebellion against the Kremlin. That deal let him leave Russia without facing a crime, but it appears that he felt the need to come back. The Wagner founder has not made a public appearance since the revolt ended. The Kremlin claims that it isn't following Prigozhin's movements and has no wish to do so, according to a Putin spokesperson. Jill, this is obviously fascinating to watch as we all saw the pseudo-coup unfold a couple of weekends ago and shocked that Putin let Prigozhin live, even in neighboring Belarus, where he effectively sort of has control. Uh, And now he's allowed back in the country. I was reading the Washington Post write-up on this, and they spoke to a St. Petersburg businessman. Keep in mind, uh, Putin's from St. Petersburg. Prigozhin's from St. Petersburg. And they spoke to a businessman in St. Petersburg who confirmed that Prigozhin has since gone back to St. Petersburg to reclaim money and weapons that had been seized from him by Russian security services. Uh, That person tells the Washington Post that they gave him back his Glock uh, and another weapon. He came back to get them himself. Uh, So a lot of just uh, questions here as to what exactly is taking place uh, what the deal is. Uh, of course, there's questions about those criminal charges. Uh, you know, Prigozhin launched his mercenary group against the Russian government, took over Southern Command, killed more than a dozen Russian airmen, shot down helicopters, took his tanks to within 120 miles of Moscow, then turned around, made this deal, went to go live in Belarus. We haven't seen him publicly. He's been releasing audio messages on the app Telegram, but apparently his jet has been flying back and forth between Belarus to Moscow to St. Petersburg. What's up with that? One analyst tells the uh, British newspaper, The Guardian, that the fact that Prigozhin appears to move freely around Russia indicates that he continues to enjoy some leverage in the country. It does not look like, at this point, like he fears for his life, even though many people are saying, well, his time is up, right? Look how he embarrassed Putin. One analyst had said at the time that the deal was announced that Prigozhin would basically live and be allowed to go to Belarus, said he must have something on Putin. There is there something that we don't know here. Um, Meanwhile, Russian security forces raided Prigozhin's St. Petersburg Palace, and they say they found guns, ammunition, gold bars, a stuffed alligator, and a cupboard full of wigs, including many (laughs) women's wigs. Um, Prigozhin abandoned that home after that aborted coup attempt last month. Jill, I'm glad they threw in the stuffed alligator and the cupboard full of wigs. Um, Maybe he had to go back and get some of those. Interestingly, Putin disclosed last week that Russia paid him more than $3 billion for the Wagner Group. Remember the Wagner Group, the mercenary group, these soldiers, uh, many of them ex-cons, many of them murderers, uh, who basically were deployed along Russian lines, uh, doing some of the most vicious fighting on behalf of Russia, uh, committing war crimes on behalf of Russia. So Putin says they paid them more than $3 billion. And here's the quote from Putin. I hope that no one stole anything. 
we will, of course, look into all of this. So, you know, it's out there. Putin says clearly he's investigating potential fraud here. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know how much of that $3 billion went to the cupboard full of wigs, Jill, or the stuffed alligator. But I'm sure they'll get to the bottom of it. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get the full story. Okay, time now for the speed read. Um, we're, we're sticking with this part of the world with an exclusive story from NBC News. A group of former senior U.S. national security officials have been holding secret talks with prominent Russians believed to be close to the Kremlin with the aim of laying the groundwork for potential negotiations to end the war in Ukraine. In a high-level example of the back-channel diplomacy taking place behind the scenes, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov met with members of the group for several hours in April uh, in New York. On the agenda, some of the thorniest issues in the war in Ukraine, like the fate of Russian-held territory that Ukraine may never be able to liberate, and the search for an elusive diplomatic off-ramp that could be tolerable to both sides. Sitting down with Lavrov was Richard Haas. He's a former diplomat and the outgoing president of the Council on Foreign Relations. And around the same time, um, he wrote a lengthy article in Foreign Affairs, which is published by the Council on Foreign Relations, laying out, quote, a plan for getting from the battlefield to the negotiating table. The piece was called uh, The West Needs a New Strategy in Ukraine, and it predicted that a likely stalemate would emerge following Ukraine's counteroffensive and recommended that the U.S. start laying the groundwork to propose a ceasefire in which both Russia and Ukraine would pull forces back from the front line, effectively creating a demilitarized zone. And then a neutral organization like the UN or the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe would send in observers to monitor and enforce the ceasefire and pull back. Assuming a ceasefire holds, then peace talks should follow. Uh, this is what he wrote. Now, meanwhile, um, an official in Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's office said they wouldn't even comment on this report, but their overall position is the same, that the fate of Ukraine cannot be decided without Ukraine, which is part of why this is so controversial. Um, but despite that, Moshe, after about a year and a half of war, perhaps there is an off-ramp here. Yeah, this is how diplomacy tends to work through these back-channel talks without official speaking. All the sources declined to be named in order to keep the talks confidential here. Jill, among the goals, they want to keep channels of communication with Russia open where possible and to feel out where there might be room for future negotiation, compromise, and diplomacy over finally ending this war. According to NBC, the discussions have taken place with the knowledge of the White House, but not at its direction. Uh, the discussions are known in diplomatic parlance as track to diplomacy. If you want to sound really smart to your friends in conflict resolution and then the government, you can talk <laughs> about track to diplomacy here. Uh, as a former master student, Jill, in conflict resolution and security policy, this is something that uh, I remember working on uh, back uh, in school, uh, figuring out how this works. It's effectively track to diplomacy is unofficial in engagement involving private citizens not currently in government. Or in the case of the Lavrov meeting, they call it Trek 1.5, meaning current officials are involved uh, to a certain extent in talks. As part of the effort, at least one former U.S. official has traveled to Russia. And Track 2 talks here have a long history in U.S. diplomacy. Uh, back in 94, former President Jimmy Carter traveled to North Korea with the aim of ending the North Korean nuclear program. Of course, that was not very successful uh, and uh, didn't quite work out for the Clinton administration at the time. Uh, another example of Track 2 diplomacy 
being initially successful was the Oslo Accords uh, between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, the 1993 agreement that created uh, effectively the Palestinian Authority and led to several years of kind of off and on uh, talks there. But uh, it appears here, at least this is a this is a sign uh, as we head into month 18 of the war, that there are some efforts. And the fact that Lavrov was present uh, is pretty significant. He's been a longtime foreign minister for Russia, very close to Vladimir Putin, as far as we know, right? Because you can't know everything about Russia. Uh, but the fact that he was involved here uh, is not insignificant. All right, from Bloomberg News, the U.S. labor market showed fresh signs of resilience on Thursday as private hiring surged, layoffs slowed, and filings for unemployment benefits stayed relatively low. U.S. companies added almost half a million jobs last month, the most in over a year. And this is according to data from ADP. And then there was this separate report from Challenger Gray in Christmas that showed uh, announced job cuts by U.S. employers fell in June to an 8 month low. Um, so the numbers out on Thursday, shockingly good. Yeah, Jill, and we should explain to people there's a number of sources, right? You mentioned the ADP data. You mentioned the challenger data. Uh, significantly today, we'll get the government's employment report. And ADP data does often uh, differ from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which will be out Friday morning. Uh, but they're all consistent with a trend, which is the labor market barely cooling. Now, that might sound great to you, and typically it is. But as we've been telling you on this podcast and the newsletter on Instagram, what's good right now is actually bad because a hot job market means people are able to make higher wages, right? Because a hot job market means you got to offer more to people. With that extra money, they have more spending money. With that spending money, that means they're buying a lot of things, which means stores can charge more because demand is so high, hence inflation. So weirdly enough, we live in this reality for the past year where we've been sort of rooting for a stop to hiring, if not some job cuts, in order to indicate that inflation might cool. So the big question right now is what does that mean for the Fed when it comes to interest rates? Will they need to continue to hike interest rates when they meet next? Keep in mind when we're talking about inflation right now, it remains above 4%. They'd like it to be at 2%. And it appears based on these jobs reports, unless there's a shocker in the government report on Friday, that uh, we're going to be living in a reality of 4% price increases for at least the near future. Yeah, with good news being bad news and bad news being good news, there is a reason that this gangbusters job report came out <laughs> and the market, at least the Dow, that, was, oh. da was down uh, about 300, 400 points at a point Thursday morning. Yeah, we're all rooting for a little bad news in the jobs market. I know it's as bizarre coming out of my mouth as it sounds to all of you. If you happen to be walking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and ask somebody, you know, and not knowing anything about the market, why is the market down right now? And they said, oh, the jobs report was too good. You would think <laughs> you were losing your mind. You would, you would not think that you were hearing this correctly. Um, on the jobs front, we know the tech industry is one of the industries, though, that has taken a hit recently. Uh, this story from Axios, recent tech layoffs disproportionately impacting women. The tech industry skews male, but a disproportionate percentage of the workers laid off since last fall appear to be women. There are fears now that the big tech layoffs that rock the industry could set back its years-long push to diversify. So from October 2022 to June of 2023, women made up about 45% of laid off tech employees. This is according to an analysis of about 3,400 workers by uh, layoffs.fyi. Um, it was shared with Axios. So 45%, obviously not the majority, but these companies employ far more men than women. Um, in Meta, for example, 63% of employees are male. Um, that's according to the company's data. 
So it's disproportionate, despite the fact that it looks 50-50, these companies are by no means 50-50. Uh, the methodology here is interesting. Layoffs.fyi, which tracks industry downsizing, ran the full names of laid-off U.S. tech employees taken from opt-in lists through a gender name analyzer. The analyzer isn't perfect, and the opt-in list may have had a bit of selection bias here, but the rationale here makes a bit of sense. Uh, the areas hit in these layoffs at these tech companies are typically areas more female-dominated. HR, recruiting, marketing took a big hit at a bunch of these companies, and the majority of people who work in those divisions tend to be women. Almost half of HR people and recruiters were laid off in tech, compared to 10% of engineers, overwhelmingly male in Silicon Valley, and only 4% of salespeople, according to their analysis. From NPR, at least 45% of the nation's tap water could be contaminated with at least one form of PFAS, known as forever chemicals. This is according to a newly released study by the U.S. Geological Survey. The man-made chemicals, of which there are thousands, are found in all sorts of places, from nonstick cookware to stain-resistant carpets to contaminated sources of food and water, and they break down very slowly building up in people, animals, and the environment over time. Researchers observe the chemicals more frequently in samples collected near urban areas and potential PFAS sources like airports and wastewater treatment plants, which is in line with previous research. The scientists estimate there is a 75% chance that PFAS will be found in urban areas and a 25% chance in rural areas. The study suggests that exposure may be more common in certain geographical regions. Potential hotspots are in the Great Plains, the Great Lakes, the Eastern Seaboard, and Central Southern California regions. So, like so half basically the where the majority, <laughs> more, I mean, basically where <laughs> the bulk of people live. Jill, this isn't the first time we've been talking about PFAS. You've been seeing them in the headlines more recently uh, for a number of reasons. Research has linked exposure to certain PFAS at a certain level to adverse health effects in humans. Some of them have been proven to show an increased risk of certain cancers, increased obesity, high cholesterol risk, uh, decreased fertility, low birth weight in children. This study is the first to compare PFAS in tap water from both public and private supplies on a broad scale throughout the country. If you're concerned about this, the EPA recommends contacting your state environmental protection agency or health department and your local water utility to find out what actions they suggest. We'll actually include a link here so you can check your zip code uh, and the water near you. They suggest you could install specific kinds of filters that are certified to lower the level of PFAS in your water. Uh, you specifically need to look for a specific, and they tend to be more expensive, water filters that remove some of these. Meanwhile, there are federal efforts underway to limit these forever chemicals in drinking water. In March, uh, as we told you here on this podcast, the EPA proposed the first federal drinking limits on six forms of PFAS, which it estimates could reduce PFAS exposure for nearly 100 million Americans. Something to keep in mind here, Jill, depending on your age, how much you've been exposed to uh, in certain areas, that all really matters in terms of your risk exposure here um, on this. So, you know, not to freak people out, there are certainly things you can do, but it appears uh, on a wide scale here that everyone's becoming aware of uh, these materials and the impact they're having on our drinking water. And most, just to be clear, what do you mean by age and, and impact? What, what they're saying is that, you know, if there's a lot of exposure at a very young age or at, at age you're developing uh, to be more concerned about uh, the impact of PFAS there uh, versus adulthood. But again, I am not a certified expert on this, uh, merely reading the research, uh, and it's important to you know dive deeper into the water near you. And of course, 
the things you could be doing to uh, ensure that you know, you're drinking as healthy water as you can get these days. From USA Today, the FDA on Thursday approved the drug lecanemab for people with early Alzheimer's disease, making it easier for older adults to get the first drug proven to slow memory and thinking problems. This decision was closely watched by patient advocates and scientists because that drug, which is sold under the brand name Legambi is the first beta amyloid targeting medication to pass the FDA's full review. Now, part of the reason that this is such a big deal is because the approval is expected to trigger Medicare coverage for adults 65 and older who have been unable to afford the drug, which costs $26,500 a year. Yeah, under expanded coverage, a million or more Medicare patients are potential candidates for this drug, Jill. But it is likely that a much smaller number will actually get it in the next year or so. And part of that has to do with side effects, which we'll discuss here in a second. Uh, Right now, more than 6 million Americans live with Alzheimer's disease. It is the fifth leading cause of death for adults over the age of 65. So this drug works by clearing beta amyloid, a protein that accumulates in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. But we should note that this drug does not prevent stop or reverse Alzheimer's. But there is some evidence that it does slow down its effect ever so slightly here. And that is what has led to this FDA approval. Lecanemab appeared to slow declines in memory and thinking by about 27% after 18 months of treatment. So again, just slows the effects, slows the decline, but that may mean that you do get you know continued more quality time with your loved one while they're taking this medication. At the same time, as I mentioned, there are side effects here, and that was certainly a concern that was brought up in these meetings. The FDA will require a boxed warning about the drug's known side effects, which include brain swelling and bleeding. These side effects, called amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, occur in some patients who take the drug or other amyloid-targeting drugs. Jill, it has been decades since there have been new drugs related to Alzheimer's, uh, and patient advocates have been begging pharma companies to develop something. There's been uh, a pretty tricky road with a lot of bumps, uh, and there's been hot debate over how much this drug will really mean and whether the side effects are worth it. But for many patient advocates who are experiencing Uh, or have loved ones experiencing Alzheimer's, they'll take anything for more quality time with their loved one. uh, And they hope that the progress made with this drug will lead to an even more successful drug down the road. All right, Jill, on this Friday, July 7th, uh, time for On This Day in History. Hopefully next year on this day, we'll be marking your big Powerball or Mega Millions win. (laughs) I'll take it. For the record, if I win the Powerball, I'm not coming to work. (laughs) Monday. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't implying, Jill, that uh, you'll be part of the podcast next year when you've made $500 million, but we will be mentioning you. Just, you know, if you have time with on your yacht to listen to the podcast, we will mention you next July 7th to mark your big win. Appreciate it. All right, Jill, let's begin in 1898. The Hawaiian Islands were annexed on this day by the United States. And there's an interesting history here, uh, which many people don't know, uh, but Hawaiians do. It begins in 1893 when a small group of white business and plantation owners, with the support of the U.S. envoy to Hawaii, basically led a coup on the Hawaiian queen. And that came a few years after the queen's predecessor, her brother, who happened to be king before her, was forced to sign a new constitution at gunpoint that stripped him of most of his powers. So then later, uh, the coup leaders immediately pushed for the U.S. to annex Hawaii, which it did on this day in 1898, Hawaii eventually becoming the 50th state. But there is a dark side here to Hawaiian history and and how it effectively became a state. 
All right, let's fast forward here. This week in 1994, Jill, 29 years ago this week, Amazon.com was founded in Seattle under the name Kadabra, as in Abracadabra. I didn't know that was the original name. Jeff Bezos wanted to go with that name, you know, kind of magic, Abracadabra, like our website brings you things. But apparently uh, his lawyer and others had misheard the word as cadaver. And so uh, they eventually go with Amazon. Little did you know. Or as we say here, the mo you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, a bit of women's soccer history here. Led by Megan Rapinoe, the U.S. women's soccer team defeated the Netherlands to win its fourth World Cup on this day in 2019, four years ago. And we should note that this year's Women's World Cup is just two weeks away, a little less than two weeks away. It starts on July 20th down in New Zealand and Australia, where we will be rooting for USA to win yet again. All right, as we typically do, we end here with some pop culture. On this day in 1990, this is a favorite of mine, Jill, Mr. Belvedere, the finale, aired 33 years ago today, <laughs> July 8th, 1990. It was a sitcom, for those who don't know, with a great theme song about a British butler who ends up in Pittsburgh because, Jill, 1980s sitcoms had bizarre, bizarre plots. <laughs> they did. It would never fly now. If you pitched any of these shows, they'd be like, are you crazy? Harry and the Hendersons, Alf, Small Alf. Wonder, <laughs> right? You're like, an alien comes and lives with you. Small Wonder, like, this girl you have is a robot, but everyone thinks she's real. We could go on on 80s TV, but let's turn now to 90s TV, because on this day, 31 years ago, Melrose Place premieres on Fox. There was nothing better than the Beverly Hills 90210 Melrose Place two-hour combo Going into school the next day and being able to talk about it with your friends, uh, the best. And then when does Party of Five come? I think a bit later. All right, we'll have to mark an anniversary of Party of Five at some point. And finally, a bit of music here, turning 28 years old today. On July 8th, 1995, Jill, TLC Waterfalls reached number one on the Billboard charts. All right, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for we are watching, reading, and eating. Uh, what are we watching? Mosh, kick it off. I know it's been on for a little bit, Jill, but I am planning on checking out Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary <laughs> on Netflix. Um, I've heard good things, and I'm looking forward to it. What are you watching? So I am watching Hijack on Apple TV with Idris Elba. Um, basically, he is a passenger on a hijacked airplane. This all happens in real time, kind of like 24. So the first uh, three, maybe four episodes are out. I am such an addict when it comes to binge watching that I forgot that Apple TV doesn't necessarily release the entire series at once. Right, so I just right. Started they release watching. every week. Yeah, yeah, so I started watching it last weekend thinking – Oh, great. I have a new series to watch. And I got hooked. And then all of a sudden, after the, the third hour, it stopped. And I was like, ah! So I'm very excited. I think the uh, fourth episode is finally up. So I'm excited to watch it. Jella takes you back to your Melrose Place days. You had to wait. You had to wait back then. <laughs> a full week. And then if there was a rerun, brutal. All right, Jill, what are you reading? Okay, so we've been talking so much about age on this podcast. I am reading this article from the Wall Street Journal. It's called, Here's When We Hit Our Physical and Mental Peaks. So scientists comb through tons of data, some of their findings. Elite swimmers peak in their early 20s. Power lifters peak at 35. And equestrians, even later than that, 
Creativity apparently peaks either very early in someone's career or later on, depending on how we think. And our ability to quickly absorb facts, that reaches its zenith in our late teens, while our vocabulary skills actually crest in our sixth decade. So we still have things to look forward to. Jill, based on the summary you just read, I can get into horseback riding and I'm looking forward to my <laughs> vocabulary uh, getting really, really advanced uh, in the coming years. Uh, it might explain though why I remember so much from like AP US history class in my late teens, that whole absorb facts thing. Hi Mosh, what are you reading? So there's a piece in The Atlantic, one of our favorite magazines, Jill, about a radical, what they call a radical idea for fixing polarization in American politics. And they roll out, can proportional representation save American democracy? Uh, I'll save you all the details. I'll probably go through it over on the premium Instagram account uh, this weekend. Effectively, what these authors are offering is that instead of our current congressional district makeup of 435 districts, they would go to less districts but there would be multiple seats. So instead of a state having, say, 20 Congress people from 20 different districts, they would have maybe eight districts or seven districts, but then multiple people from each of those districts who would be elected proportionally based on how many votes their party gets. So it would, they think, ensure that uh, there would be multiple parties uh, involved in Congress, effectively a version of what you see in parliamentary systems uh, over uh, across the border in Canada or over in Europe, where uh, there are multiple parties, which requires coalitions, which requires compromise. Uh, and so that's the proposal here. Unlikely to be a reality, but it's interesting to read nonetheless. A nice thought exercise. That's what we try to do on weekends, Jill. We try to escape reality <laughs> with nice thought exercises. With that said, what are you eating this weekend? Okay, I mentioned that I'm going to be hosting a bunch of my friends from college. Uh, I went to Michigan, and that has me feeling a bit nostalgic for Zingerman's. It is this amazing deli in Ann Arbor. Um, if you know, you know, as they say. So I'll be trying to replicate that as much as possible with um, the food that I will be serving. Jill, I think I'm reading here on the Googles uh, that Zingerman's, uh, you can st order stuff through the mail from them. Is that right? Okay, Mosh, I know what I will be doing later tonight. <laughs> <laughs> what are you eating? All right. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I've been taste testing ice cream as we've been reading through the news here. Uh, my wife, Alex, found a brand called Alex Ice Cream but A-L-E-C, like Alex, like belonging to Alex with a C. Uh, anyway, so Alex ice cream. Uh, she bought peanut butter, fudge, honeycomb, and salted caramel latte. Uh, both are delicious. I think I prefer the salted caramel right now. So uh, appreciate, of course, my wife for getting the ice cream. And uh, I should note, by the way, this is not a paid endorsement by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> we just got it at the grocery store and I really like it. Uh, but before she surprised me with the ice cream this afternoon, I had written that it's stone fruit season, peaches, plums, nectarines, and uh, they had a tough season. But uh, our most recent purchase from the grocery store uh, had some real delicious finds. So go out and get your peaches while they're in season, folks. Peaches and ice cream, a perfect summer combination. Um, on that note, we want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And we appreciate all of you who are joining Mo News Premium. The numbers keep climbing. It's a way to Adam Masseri, what's up? Including Instagram head Adam Masseri. It's an opportunity to support independent journalism. Uh, you get access to our members-only Instagram account, uh, members-only uh, podcast. 
with uh, some exclusive content. Joel, we have an interview uh, all about Amazon and Walmart and that competition coming next week, just ahead of Prime Day and Walmart Plus Day. You can head over to mo.news slash premium to join today. We have a special deal right now, two months free if you become an annual member of Mo News Premium and all the benefits that come with. We have some exciting stuff in store for later this summer and fall for premium members. All right, bye everyone. Have a great weekend. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.